Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the social safety net we need in the face of coronavirus and the forces preventing us from having it. However, before we get started, as Joel, our production assistant here at the show, said very concisely, non-traditional times call for non-traditional podcasts. And so what I am predicting is that things are going to be in flux for a little while. The schedule of the show is going to be in flux for a little while. We're going to be trying some totally different things to manage the situation we're in because trying to do things normally feels like the least normal thing to do right now. So my first idea of what to do in a non-traditional way is to sort of have a check-in here at the beginning of the show and address the, the, the thing that is in the forefront of everyone's mind is just how we're dealing with this, how everyone is dealing with the situation and how we're feeling about it. Amanda has joined me here at the beginning. Hey, everyone. And so we're just going to talk about how our week has been. This is like lockdown week one, more or less. How, yeah. how are you feeling about it? Oh, man, how am I feeling about it? I, I think that now, knowing what may come, that things are probably only going to get worse, <laughs> um, trying to have that expectation set, because as we know, expectations are really important. And so we can definitely have the expectations that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better right now. I think that that sounds strange to say, but I think that actually helps a little bit to be able to know, brace yourself <laughs> for what is coming and, um, and also use this time before things are getting much more dire to check in with your loved ones, your friends, people you care about and see how they're your doing podcast hosts, your podcast, hosts, see how they're doing because, um, because especially those who are at high risk, I don't know about everyone else, but almost my entire family falls into the high risk of serious illness category, which is really scary. So there's asthma, there's COPD, there's uh, heart issues, there's all sorts of stuff in my family. And so I, I get really anxious about them and, and how they're doing. And also have to be really aware of the fact that I'm a young person. I can't just go around doing whatever I want. Not only could I infect someone else, but we have learned more and more that the disease can definitely affect young people and put them in the hospital and cause long-term effects. So so all of that has been on my mind, just kind of trying to prepare for what can be done to help those people in my life who are going to need the most help. How can I help society? What can I contribute? <laughs> That's that's sort of where I'm at today. <laughs> it might might be very different tomorrow. Who knows? I I can't remember where I heard this, so I'm not taking credit. But and I wish I could give credit where due. But sort of speaking of dealing with emotions, I heard on on a show, sort of discussing how we will naturally be having these differing ideas and feelings in ourselves, like. Um, totally understanding why we need to be horribly inconvenienced and at the same time, like really disappointed and just personally sort of frustrated <laughs> kind of and, down. <laughs> and, and down about that or, or, you know, but I, I think it was in the context of travel 
Like mm-hmm. if, if, you had, if you had a vacation planned and now you don't, don't get to do it, it's, re- it's a very selfish thing to be like, oh, right. I wish I could go on my trip. And so what these people were talking about was like, give yourself, oh, I guess it, it was, uh, it was the Daily Show. I think Trevor Noah was saying this. Give yourself some time, you know, just a few seconds, maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> to, uh, to have a pity party. <laughs> yeah. To, to like feel selfish and feel bad. Mm-hmm. And then let it go. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of the pilot episode of Lost. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Pilot episode. You're going to have to. So uh, when Jack is pretty badly injured and needs to be sewn up, Mm -hmm. Kate is there to help sew him up, but she's really scared. Right. And and, And he gives the advice to like count to five and let the fear in. And then move past it yeah that that is a good way of describing it that's sort of where where i think i am right now like i i'm in the what are all the terrible things that could possibly happen mode accept those things acknowledge that those things could be possible and now move on (laughs) and and even acknowledge that fear is okay right right it's not helpful to perpetuate it and allow just fear and worry to overtake you, but right. to acknowledge it as a normal part of the process mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to let it in, to let it do its work and then to set it aside and focus on what we can focus on. Right. And, and, and really, as always, I feel like this is always a struggle for everybody to, you only have control over so much. Right. So really think about the things you can actually impact and control to wring your hands and, you know, drown in anxiety about the things you can't control. I mean, everyone does it, but but to try to separate those two things. Right. And so I'll I'll tell you how I've been feeling this week, which is going to blend with what I'm going to tell you about how the show's been going. I've been feeling personally very tired, Mm -hmm. and I think it's a combination of things. Like, I've been doing the thing where I end up staying up too late reading news, and then my body doesn't just naturally let me sleep the amount of time I need. I still kind of wake up at my normal wake-up time, so I end up with only six hours instead of seven and a half or, or whatever I need. And so, uh, but generalized anxiety, all of the things that just drain a person, which has been giving me, I would say, personal insight. I mean, I have no data or expertise, but what it makes me think about is how we don't yet even understand how we're responding to this. We're, we're in we're in emotional shock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's going to take months or years before we can look back and realize like, oh my God, look how I was reacting to that. Look how my body was responding. What was I doing right? What was I doing wrong? Like, what did I need and not give myself? I mean, there's also going to be PTSD from this. I mean, there are people who don't know if they have a job to go to tomorrow or if they have a paycheck coming in, if they can pay rent, if they can pay for groceries. Like, those things are traumatic. And they're traumatic on a regular level when, you know, you're already financially insecure. And then to add all this on top of it, those are those are really traumatic events. Yeah, no, I mean, this is this is a very a very, very real trauma that the entire world is experiencing. But of course, people experience it in very different ways across the spectrum. So this week, I've just sort of allowed those feelings to take over and 
It's, you know, I don't know when exactly this show is going to post, but I definitely missed an episode this week because I just gave myself permission to miss an episode this week. Like, I I didn't have the mental energy, physical energy, bandwidth, motivation, like, Mm -hmm. it all drained away. And you're used to working from home, but this is different. Yeah. It's really different. There's... um, there's only so much of your energy in the day that can um, be used up, I feel like, these days. And, and the the news and the impending, you know, scariness of all of this is definitely sucking our energy from us. I think that is the only way to, you know, describe it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I as I said at the very beginning, I think things are going to be in flux. And I wouldn't, I think it would be silly to predict now what I'm going to do going forward and what the show is going to look like and what the schedule is going to be. Because I, I think, I think that the honest truth is the schedule is going to be what we can make it. Mm-hmm. Whatever we feel like we can do, that's what we're going to try to do. And then the other thing that was really hanging over me this week is, is that this show by, by the nature of it is in a unique position of lagging behind the news. And so there was about a week where I was in this position where everything in the world had changed and it only made sense to talk about one thing, (laughs) but I didn't have a show ready on that one thing yet. And it felt really, really wrong to do a show that I had been planning on doing, talking about basically Joe Biden's record and how under normal circumstances he should be disqualified immediately and be seen as completely unelectable. Yeah, yeah You guys remember that primary we were having, right? You, Vaguely. R- rings a bell. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's that's the show I had been working on and I kept I kept like plowing forward and like trying to work on it and that's that I kept hitting this wall that was a combination of energy and, you know, mental space being taken up by everything else. And also just this nagging feeling like this isn't the episode I should be doing right now. Yeah, and I so mean, you're not the only one. I had to dig to get the results of the primary. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> through my news sources. So. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, if I had to guess, I would say like we're probably going to continue this as a new tradition mm-hmm. for now and just sort of check in with ourselves and with you guys and make sure you know that we're here and human and mm-hmm. experiencing all the same things you are. And you know what? I, I think that I've come across a number of really good resources for managing anxiety, for, you know, having kids at home, for all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I can um, I'll throw something in the show notes each time for people to explore and check out. Um, there's a lot going around, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to throw in what I think might be the best of. That yeah, that sounds good. And um, and and we would love to hear from you guys if you have yeah. your own stories to tell. Just because it might be cathartic for yourself to tell your own story about how you're feeling, how your life has been disrupted, how you're being affected personally, literally anything you want to share. That's what our voicemail line is for. Commiserate with each other. Other people want to know that they're not alone. Exactly. And and 
And knowing that whether it's cathartic for you or not, <laughs> other people would love to hear your stories. Yeah. So uh, our, our number to dial, as always, 202-999-3991. And so with that lost episode set aside into the archives for the time being, we'll move on to the conversation of the day with clips coming up from Counterspin, Democracy Now!, Intercepted, On the Media, Rumble with Michael Moore, The Majority Report, and The Weeds. It is not lost on some that, all of a sudden, paid sick leave is obviously socially important. Understaffed hospitals are an outrage. And really, shouldn't the government be paying for this? I mean, it's community health we're talking about. And all it took was a little pandemic. An outbreak that, as it just happens, doesn't confine itself to low-income or non-white people. The New York Times' Farhad Manju tried wistfully to imagine U.S. companies and politicians taking seriously the coronavirus lesson of the need for a real social safety net and worker protections. Journalists could also themselves keep focus on enduring fissures that a public health crisis throws into relief. For example, as more schools move their classes online, we could talk about the minimally 12 million disproportionately African-American and Latinx students who don't have Internet access at home. To the extent that elite media acknowledge a digital divide anymore, they generally foreground differences between urban and rural access to broadband. But as work by Free Press and others has shown, rural deployment, while important, is still not as significant as the adoption gap, due primarily to cost, not access, for low-income people and people of color. FCC Commissioners Jessica Rosenworcel and Jeffrey Starks are calling on the agency to step up in the COVID-19 crisis by lending hotspots to schools and libraries and setting up mobile hotspots in low-income neighborhoods, for instance. As elite media go on about how we all should, nay must, telework, teleschool, telehealth, and so on, we can ask that they try and hold on to what they're now learning about who can't do that and why. If you'd pictured how Donald Trump would handle something like the COVID-19 crisis, you probably pictured something like what he's doing. Also living down to expectations, Beltway reporters who continue to present Trump's dangerously nonsensical rants as basically normal, nothing-to-see-here events. In his newsletter press run, critic Eric Bollert called Trump's March 6th briefing at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in which Trump lied that anyone who wanted to could get tested for the virus, called the governor of Washington a snake, and alleged he had a natural ability for science, a declaration of incompetence and delusion on a grand scale. And Bullard marveled that the New York Times would whitewash that into a respectful piece headlined, It Will End, Trump Urges Nation to Avoid Panicking. The Associated Press wondered, quote, whom to believe on the coronavirus threat, the president saying one thing or the public health official standing beside him and saying something a little different, close quote, while NPR suggested that Trump's breezy approach, in which he relies on his gut 
for information was, quote, colliding with a public health emergency, close quote. That's one way to put it. Neil DeMoss, writing for FAIR.org, found elite reporters still studiously avoiding discussion of the emperor's clothes after Trump's March 11th outing, in which he called COVID-19 a foreign virus and sort of, but not really, banned travel from Europe, along with claiming he'd got insurers to waive co-payments for treatment, which isn't true, and saying he's making antiviral therapies available in record time though antivirals aren't actually available yet. Reading the Washington Post on that, you'd get a story leading, quote, a besieged President Trump, who was slow to treat the coronavirus as a serious threat as it spread across the United States, announced a drastic emergency measure Wednesday night designed to save American lives from the pandemic, close quote. CNN let you know that Trump's speech was met with fierce pushback, not from people on earth, but from critics like Joe Biden. Giving officials words weight simply because they're officials, DeMoss notes, harms us not just by lending them undue weight and casting any dissent as mere political disagreement, but also by sucking up the space that could be given to people who know what they're talking about. As the number of coronavirus cases in the United States passes 1,300 cases with 38 deaths, more than 30 million workers lack access to paid sick leave. President Trump addressed the nation Wednesday night, saying he'll expand sick leave as part of the emergency response to the virus. If you are sick or not feeling well, stay home. To ensure that working Americans impacted by the virus can stay home without fear of financial hardship, I will soon be taking emergency action, which is unprecedented, to provide financial relief. This will be targeted for workers who are ill, quarantined, or caring for others due to coronavirus. I will be asking Congress to take legislative action to extend this relief. That was President Trump speaking last night. But the same day, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee blocked an attempt by Senate Democrats to quickly pass legislation requiring employers to grant paid sick leave. The idea of paid sick leave is a good idea. But if Washington, D.C. thinks it's a good idea, Washington, D.C. should pay for it. When I was governor of Tennessee, nothing used to make me more unhappy than some well-meaning individual in the United States Senate or House coming up with a big idea, passing it, taking credit for it, and sending me the bill. And so employees are struggling. So are employers struggling. This comes as Democrats in the House of Representatives prepare to debate a package of bills today to give workers 14 days paid sick leave and up to three months of paid family and medical leave. The bill also includes funding for low-income mothers and pregnant people who may be laid off due to coronavirus, $400 billion for local food banks and free coronavirus testing for all those who need it, including those without insurance. Labor Department data says one in four workers have no access to paid sick leave, including two-thirds of the lowest income earners. 
The U.S. is one of the only wealthy countries in the world that doesn't require employers to offer its workers paid sick leave. For more, we're joined by two new guests in Washington, D.C., Elise Gould, senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Her most recent article is titled, Amid COVID-19 Outbreak, the Workers Who Need Paid Sick Days the Most Have the Least. Here in New York, Donna Lieberman is with us, executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. Still with us, Robert Pollan, distinguished university professor of economics, co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute. Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Elise Gould, let's first go to you. Lay out for us what is being debated right now, what needs to happen in this country, why paid sick leave is not only for people um, who individually have it um, or could get it, but for the whole community. It's absolutely of utmost importance. The CDC recommends that people stay home. They stay home if they might have be infected, they stay home if they're quarantined, they stay home to stay out of harm's way. And unfortunately, as you said already, about a quarter of U.S. workers don't have paid sick days, don't have the ability to stay home when they're sick or they need to stay home if they're quarantined or they need to take care of another family member. So that is an important gap we need to absolutely fill with policy. And luckily, policymakers can do something about it. What makes this even worse is that low-wage workers are far less likely to have paid sick days, and they're far less likely to be able to work from home. And when you think about the service sector, that's sector that's going to get particularly hit by this, not only because they're out in the public, but also because they're going to have fewer customers. You're going to see some layoffs. You're going to see people's hours cut. So it's really important that we have those protections for those workers in particular. Well, uh, Donna Lieberman, you're the executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. Could you explain who at the moment does have sick leave, paid sick leave, and, and who doesn't? Well, it's really um, a, a mix. Um, the people who in New York lack paid sick leave are overwhelmingly low-paid workers um, and workers in the gig economy. Uh, and uh, that includes you know, domestic workers. Uh, it includes restaurant workers um, and um, home health care workers, home health care workers and 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 people who aren't in unions. Um, and mm. so so in and here in New York, uh, we've been campaigning for quite a while now to get mandatory paid sick leave. Um, and there are two issues. One is, you know, being able to stay out of work and get your job back. And the other is getting paid. And um, there's legislation, you know, pending in New York uh, to mandate that. And that's for the long term. You know, we also have to deal with the, the immediate problem that we're presented with, which is the coronavirus. And, and it's imperative that, that the state pass legislation that would guarantee that people will not lose their jobs or their income if they uh, adhere to the public health best practices, which is to stay in quarantine under a whole range of circumstances and work from home. Uh, meanwhile, some in the corporate sector are changing their policies in response to the pandemic, including Walmart, which launched an emergency leave policy for its 1.4 million hourly U.S. workers after a Kentucky employee tested positive. The nation's largest private employer said Tuesday workers who are diagnosed or forced to quarantine will receive two weeks pay with additional compensation for provided for up to 26 weeks for both full-time and part-time hourly workers. Darden Restaurants, the parent company of Olive 
Olive Garden said it'll now offer its hourly workers 40 hours of paid sick leave annually. Ride-hailing app Uber said it would provide drivers diagnosed with coronavirus with 14 days paid sick leave, although it didn't specify what that would amount to. Lyft also said it would compensate sick drivers, but didn't specify how. Robert Pollan, if you could address all of these, um, and also, if they test positive for the coronavirus, it is extremely difficult for people in this country to even get a test. Right. So uh, this, again, uh, really portrays the failure of our healthcare system to deal with anything, anything like this at all. Now, what we therefore need to focus on is everybody recognizing that they can have the paid sick leave that they need such that they are not going to face any kind of financial crisis on top of any kind of health care crisis. And so, as uh, Elise said, what we know is that people, let's say, in the lowest 10 percent in terms of their uh, pay scale, 90 percent of them have no paid sick leave. So this has to be recognized across the board that everyone is going to get paid sick leave. Now, Lamar Alexander said, oh, this is all well and good, but we don't know how to pay for it. It's actually very easy to pay for it. Uh, we just extend Medicaid benefits uh, to everybody that needs this. Uh, we use we expand Medicare to cover everything to do with the coronavirus and the federal government. Yes, will pay for it. Uh, I'm not exact. I'm not opposed per se to employers getting a payroll tax cut if that payroll tax cut is then used to help cover the costs of covering paid sick leave. At the same time, the most important thing for people uh, is to be able to get money in their pockets for that assurance and to recognize they have paid sick leave and full coverage for any kind of care that they need with the coronavirus. Best of the Left is a totally independent production. We have no parent company, no safety net, nothing like that. We are totally dependent on the direct financial support of the audience. And we have three people who don't work full-time on the show, but definitely depend on the show to generate money. So we are as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. You know, when, when people start not being able to go to work or getting laid off, non-essential expenses are going to be the first to go. And that means we expect to begin to see a drop in Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show on Patreon, that would be amazing. But there's also a way that you can support the show without it costing you anything. If you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we will get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes and on the device you're using to listen right now. They're also available on our website, bestofleft.com, in the sidebar. If you take just a couple of minutes to bookmark the link to your store on your browsers and even delete the mobile app from your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular shopping. Thanks so much for your help and support. You have been on the trail a lot for Bernie Sanders, and uh, I think a lot of his supporters have said that 
the way that the Trump administration has handled this situation, the current state, disastrous state of our healthcare system, our economic system, the way we treat workers in our society, that all of these argue in favor of the ideas that Bernie Sanders has spent decades fighting for. And I'm wondering now, in the aftermath of the debate and questions about how people are going to safely vote in the coming primaries, how you see where things stand right now. It is complicated because there's no question that the transformative political vision that the Sanders campaign represents is more relevant than it has ever been before. I mean, it it, it was always relevant to millions of people, um, which is why there was so much support for it. But I think people who thought, oh, it's just too much, you know, surely we can just have some tweaks here and there. This crisis, and not only the pandemic, but the economic crisis that has been set off and that we're still in the grips of, the crashed oil prices and the political crisis, all of it is is laying bare the extreme injustices and inequalities of our economic and social system. Whenever there is any kind of shock, any kind of crisis, whatever is unequal before becomes more unequal. I mean, we see this during disasters like hurricanes, but when you have a global pandemic like this and nobody is safe from it, what it shows is that the stories that capitalism has trained us to tell ourselves about how we can protect ourselves and isolate ourselves from the pain of others, that we are these solitary individual units, whether it's just a single individual or whether it's a single nuclear family or whether it's a privileged neighborhood, all that starts to break down. And the reality that our fates are enmeshed, interconnected within our countries, between our countries, that we are intensely porous, becomes exposed. So in concrete terms, Sanders has been talking about an economic inequality his entire political life. And what we see in the midst of the coronavirus crisis is that the extreme inequities of our economic system, where you have some people who are so well protected, and so many others who are so close to the line and are working these gig jobs, have no health care, have no benefits, no paid sick leave or you know, a couple days a year, all of that exposes everybody, as Bernie Sanders said. What this crisis is beginning to teach us is that we are only as safe as the least insured person in America. So if you don't have health insurance or adequate health insurance with your job, then you're not going to go see a doctor. If you have a gig instead of a job, then you're not going to be able to call in sick when symptoms present. So you're not going to go to the doctor and you're also going to go to work and infect other people. And we suddenly are realizing that even though we may have told ourselves a story about how we are isolated from each other and, and, and protected from each other, in fact, our lives are interconnected in all kinds of ways. It's other humans who grow our food, who put it into boxes, even if we're getting everything delivered, as Jeff Bezos would have us do. We are not living in an automated world. There are humans at every level, and those humans are intensely vulnerable to this crisis if they have those low-wage jobs. 
You mentioned Jeff Bezos, the largest shareholder of Whole Foods. And of course, Whole Foods recently suggested that in response to coronavirus, that healthy employees of Whole Foods should donate their vacation time to workers who are sick and need to take time off rather than just coming out and saying, oh, maybe we should pay for uh, sick pay for our workers. And I just want to read you, Naomi, a list of companies. This was put out by the organization Public Citizen, a list of U.S. companies that are currently denying workers paid sick leave. McDonald's, 517,000 workers. Walmart, 347,000 workers. Kroger, 189,000 workers. Subway, 80,000 workers. Burger King, 165,000 workers. Pizza Hut, 156,000 workers. Target, 51,000 workers. Marriott, 139,000 workers. Wendy's, 133,000 workers. These are workers that are right now being denied sick leave by the employers. Some of these companies are companies that Donald Trump held up as being stepping up to the moment, rising to the occasion to help the American people through this crisis. These are the people who are preparing food, who are putting food on shelves. These are not people far away from us. These are people who are the ones who are the reason we have food in our cupboards, if we're lucky enough to have food in our cupboards. So, This is a moment where we are realizing our interconnection and realizing what it means to not have a social safety net. The United States does not have a floor that keeps people from falling. It does not have a net. That doesn't only affect the people who fall. It affects everybody. And 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, this is criminal behavior. The moment that we're in, and I just did a piece about this for The Intercept, these moments when crisis reveals our reality to us, really holds up a mirror, and it's often a very ugly glimpse, it can lead to more panic, more hoarding, more of that instinct of let me just protect my own. So going to those supermarkets that are staffed by people without sick leave and just stripping them of everything and not worrying about anybody else. And we're certainly seeing lots of that kind of hoarding impulse right now. But The other thing that it can spark is deep policy transformations where we decide to weave that social safety net, right? And this is what happened during the Great Depression. What limited social safety net that the United States has, like social security, unemployment insurance, it emerged in the 1930s as a response to seeing so many people fall without any kind of a net. And the great irony is that the Trump administration is using this crisis where we are all seeing how vulnerable it makes us to not have a net at all. The first thing Trump started pushing was suspending the payroll tax, which is how we fund social security. So obviously, if you do that, that then becomes the excuse in a few months down the road to say, actually, we have to privatize social security or or gut it. It creates a crisis down the road, right? So we are, you know, in a battle of visions for how we're going to respond to this crisis. We will either be catapulted backwards to a more brutal winner-takes-all system, or this will be a wake-up call. And as in the 1930s, or after the Second World War, when there were major victories won for public housing, for some kind of a, of a safety net, um, and in other countries, unlike the United States, for universal public health care, was after the Second World War that Britain got the NHS, 
maybe there will be these transformations, but it's going to be a hell of a fight. And it's certainly not going to come from the Trump administration. Let's talk for a moment about Joe Biden's response to coronavirus. There was a heated exchange between Biden and Bernie Sanders in the debate on Sunday night, where Biden was openly saying, no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not working in Italy right now, and they have a single-payer system. Sanders counters trying to game out some scenarios to ask Biden, would this be covered? You're going to have a maze of regulations. Well, if this is my income, if that's my income, can I get it? Can I not get it? Clearly, we are not prepared, and Trump only exacerbates the crisis. The sense that I had is that Sanders was trying to say to Joe Biden, "Okay, well, I'm not sure that that's what your plan actually says, but let's accept that that is true. What I wanted to hear Sanders say was, let's say that a man tests positive for covid and his wife, who does not test positive, has a stroke upon hearing the news that her husband has tested positive for coronavirus. Is Joe Biden's plan going to ensure that this woman who is underinsured has treatment that doesn't bankrupt her family because of of a stroke that was uh, spurred by learning that her husband had this extremely terrifying virus? I think Sanders sort of tried to get at that, right, when he talked about the the need for mental health care in a moment like this for the person who doesn't have the virus itself. But I think the larger issue is that Bernie Sanders and many of us believe that The fact that tens of thousands of Americans die because they lack adequate health insurance or completely lack health insurance in the United States is a crisis right now with or without the coronavirus outbreak, right? This system was already in crisis. The pandemic has laid it bare. And Biden is saying, well, let's just put a Band-Aid on it. Let's have Medicare for all just for this virus. But then we can go back to letting people die from less unusual causes, right? You know, I think that that is the real debate that we need to be having. There's no doubt that the absence of a national healthcare system makes it a lot harder to deal with a health crisis. You know, as you know, Jeremy, I'm a dual American Canadian citizen. My parents are American, but I grew up in Canada, which means I grew up under a single payer universal healthcare system. And I've been living in the States for a couple of years. And I have to tell you that it's frankly terrifying compared to what my family and friends are dealing with in Canada. This whole phenomenon of having to figure out what is covered, what's in network, what's out of network, what's deductible, what's not deductible, like what it's going to mean. This is all entirely new to me. And if you have a universal healthcare system of the kind that Sanders has been talking about for decades now, none of those questions are relevant. You just go see the doctor. You don't worry about that. That is what the system does. And so, of course, it is exacerbating the crisis, just like economic insecurity and precariousness and the lack of protections for workers is exacerbating the crisis. All of it makes it worse. They're interconnected. They're intermeshed. And Bernie Sanders is talking about the holistic solutions that, frankly, recognizes that this is not the first or last major crisis that we are going to face. One of his major policy platforms is the Green New Deal, which is a science-based and justice-based response to the climate crisis that recognizes that because we have done 
so little to prevent catastrophic warming. Even if we do all the right things now, and it is a plan for doing all the right things now, we're still going to be dealing with a future of more wildfires, more superstorms, more sea level rise, um, more shocks to our system. And so it is all the more important to put in that safety net, put in that floor so that people feel a degree of safety and clarity that the basics are taken care of. You will have health care. You will have housing. There's a jobs guarantee in it. All of this, it takes aim at the rampant feeling of insecurity and everybody just having to look out for themselves because nobody is looking out for them. That makes these crises so much harder to handle. One of the things that is causing so much stress right now is hoarding. It is the fact that people are so convinced that nobody will look after them, that there's no functional state, that they've stripped supermarkets, right? And they're hurting their neighbors and they're not doing it because they're terrible people. They're doing it because they've internalized a lesson that is not wrong, that they have to look after themselves. And Bernie Sanders is saying, let's build a society where we look after each other so we don't have to behave like this because it's incredibly counterproductive. It seems like the elephant in the room here, though, is, as you say, okay, so we're the United States of America. We do have this great infrastructure we have we have all the technology and the machines and the this and that not a not enough for something that as bad as this could get but um um you know we we're the, we're the USA <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, we but the elephant in the room is that it's not a healthcare system for all it's not right. it's not something and it would seem like a lot of people are going to first of all perhaps not go and get help or get tested because um, they know the bill they're going to get if they go to the ER, if they, if they um, uh, representative Katie Porter did this thing. And I saw on a committee there the other day where she laid it out on a whiteboard that uh, the tests that you'll have to go through at the ER normally would, they'd charge you $1,100, $1,200 for what people don't have $1,200. They're not going to go mm-hmm. and get tested. And so things will just get worse because we don't have a system where that test would just be free. If you were in Canada, if you were in, in the UK, if you were in France, if you just pick another country, just pick any, any democracy, Belgium. Um, that's my favorite go-to by the way, Belgium, like if Belgium can do it, why can't we do it? But Mm -hmm. why, you know, it would seem like that this is, you know, and again, people will say, listening to this, well, you just don't turn this into a political thing. But, But to me, everything is, you know, political i'm like uh, you know the air i'm breathing today how, the air quality i'm breathing today yeah. is political um so um that we don't have this that people um are afraid of the copays or the deductible um or or you know they just they just aren't going to seek the help or i just love it when these at that press every press conference they all stand at the mic there with trump and they tell people that if you're feeling sick, don't go to work. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. It's easy, easy to say. Yeah, because we don't have a paid sick leave uh, uh, law in this country. Where in all these other countries, if you're sick, you stay home and you don't have to worry about getting paid. You get paid. Mm-hmm. We're, we've got half the country 
living from paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40% of the country doesn't have four, $500 to their name. Mm-hmm. I mean, actual cash available if there's an emergency. That's right. How are we, I mean, uh, can I call you Abdul? Me, <laughs> yeah, just, of course. Dr. Dr. Sayed. I mean, Abdul. seriously, <laughs> yeah, if it would just seem, and I, and I know we can't really engage in this debate too deeply right now, but it would seem that there's an easy solution for that. When we have a crisis like this, we don't have to worry. Nobody has to worry about getting help. That's right. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, one of the things I love about your work is that you've documented the fact that America is not America for everybody. And there are so many people who are left out, marginalized, oppressed out of uh, the systems that uh, we rely on in this country to offer folks a dignified life, whether that be um, healthcare, which I'll, I'll talk about more in a second, but also housing or basic employment or uh, retirement or a living wage. Uh, or access to the vote or uh, access to the stock market, like all of these things that we point to, um, a whole swath of Americans are not included in them. I wrote a, a book uh, that comes out in a couple of weeks called Healing Politics, um, which really documents this idea of an epidemic of insecurity where people being left out are left insecure from the things uh, that they would have, should have, could have relied upon uh, to keep themselves whole, to allow themselves to live a dignified life. When it comes to healthcare in particular, though, I think it's the tip of the iceberg because, um, you know, the idea that people are left out of a system uh, that you need for something as basic as keeping yourself alive if something bad happens um, really typifies exactly what it means to put basic goods and services behind a paywall. And that's what we've done in this country. And we do it all the time so that CEOs like the folks who lined up with uh, Donald Trump at his press conference um, can make a bit of money off of uh, basic goods and services that other countries in the world have realized just ought to be there for you because you're a human who lives in our country, right? And um, the consequence when it comes to preventing a disease like this is huge. And it's not just the it's not just the uninsured, right? It's also the fact that um, even if you have insurance in this country, the average deductible is $5,000. And $5,000, you have to pay in the beginning of the year. So the fact that this COVID-19 epidemic pandemic is happening in uh, the first couple of months of the year means that a lot of people are going to avoid getting healthcare because they're worried about getting hit but with the deductible, which is just a cost that you pay to get access to the thing you already paid for, right? right it's a, right. an absurd system. And this is why, you know, I, I, I like, I, I appreciate your point about, about this not being a political situation, but like you said, um, everything is political. We, we make political choices about whether or not we want leaders who dignify uh, basic human rights. We make decisions about whether or not we want leaders who um, center science in conversations about healthcare. We make decisions about whether or not we want leaders who have experience taking on um, big societal problems and investing uh, in government's ability to do that. Like those are political decisions that have deep impact on our public health, and they're not outside of the bounds of our conversation um, when we're talking about how uh, our public health has been mismanaged politically. We have to talk about that, and if we don't, right, then we're failing to hold accountable the very people um, whom we've given right. uh, the. The, the, the ability to lead. You know, you and I are talking about trying to create a, a system that covers everybody. And we all, you know, it's all for one and one for all. We're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. And yet what we're being told this week is uh, stay out of the boat that everybody else is in. Uh, you know, don't separate yourself from people at a time when we need to be with people more, more than ever. 
it's a weird dichotomy when you hear it, when you think about it, right? Um, that, and, and even just, you know, this as a doctor, even when, you know, when you're sick, when a patient is sick, the, psychologically, um, you don't want to be removed from people. You want, you want and need the love and, and support um, and intimacy from others. Uh, that, that is its own drug that we all need. How do you square that in this in this moment that we're in right now? Well, I'd say I'd say a couple of things. Number one, you know, all that we're doing right now, we're doing for each other, right? Um, you may not be the one who gets very sick from this uh, coronavirus, but it may be somebody that you love, and so you're keeping yourself healthy uh, and social distancing so that you can protect them, right? And so it really is a collective act. The second is that, you know, I'm grateful for technology that, you know, you and I can talk from, you know, from Michigan and New York and, uh, and we can talk to folks face to face in ways that we never could in the past. Um, take advantage of that um, and call folks and tell them you love them and tell them that you care about them and that you're thinking about them and that you hope that they stay safe. Um, and then lastly, um, you know, for the folks that you are with, right, um, I don't often get to spend as much time with, with my wife and daughter as, uh, as I'm spending right now. And so I'm going to take advantage of it. And I think that's a really uh, clear benefit too. And so, um, you know, doing the things that uh, you can to uh, remember why you're doing this, who you're doing this for, um, and who you're doing this with, I think can be really powerful. Yeah, that's, I think that's very, I think I've heard, I mean, I was talking to a couple of friends yesterday, we were saying, well, now that we're in this uh, sort of uh, new world order of how we're living our daily lives, a lot of people aren't going to work, they're working from home. Um the kids are home now in many, many states. Um, uh, maybe by the time um, we finish this conversation, the um, it'll be most states where school is out. School is out for a month. School is out for the rest of the year. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way, in a way where maybe in the old days, the way we were raised where, you know, there were parents that were home um, when we got home from school. Uh, now, now everybody's home with the kids all day long. And I've heard, you know, numerous comments and jokes about that because um, it really isn't something that we're used to. But but it also is a moment where we can take advantage of this, that mm-hmm. that we can come closer together, that we can do things that we maybe normally don't have a chance to do because we're in the rat race. Um, and maybe and maybe somebody who's listening to this will decide, you know, now that things have we're in sort of a we're all in our sort of quiet room right now. You know, I've always wanted to, to do X, whatever the X is, you know, I always wanted to learn how to, um, you know, to paint, <laughs> to write a poem, to, you know, I think I'm good at music. I have no idea how to write music, but maybe I'm, I'm just going to turn on the microphone and just start singing. I, I, I mean, you could go down a whole list of things or how about all those books that you've been wanting to read all these years? Um, the great novels, you never, for some reason you missed them when you were in school. Now's the time you can read them. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to find a silver lining in all this, but, um, I think we can come out of this better, better people, stronger, um, uh, better citizens in a democracy demanding that, that we have systems that support each other that, I mean, you and I are talking now while the. 60 or 70,000 ventilators are still kind of sitting there and able to be used today, tomorrow, whatever. We could be a week or two away from doctors 
doctors in, in hospital hallways where they've got gurneys lining the hallways and having to decide who lives and who dies because mm-hmm. they only, not everybody can use the same ventilator. I mean, we're this, this is a possibility, right? So what's happening in Italy right now. That's, that's the fear, right? Is that that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid that circumstance and that's why we're doing this. Um, but I do think it's, you know, this is an opportunity I think to, to reflect and to use your time in the ways that um, that you can. One of the challenges with the society as it stands right now is that everybody's moving for so fast that sometimes we're so focused on the what that we forget the why. And uh, maybe this is an opportunity for all of us to remember our why and to invest in that a little bit. And um, mm. you know, it's it's something that uh, that I think we all ought to ought to be thinking about. Um, and if anyone needs in a little extra reading, I, uh, you know, got a book coming out in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll check it out. Yeah. Tell people about this book. It's called healing politics, a doctor's journey into the heart of our political epidemic. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, actually it's particularly relevant now because what I do is I use, uh, the science of epidemiology, which, um, which is, is what I trained in and, uh, my own life story to then break down, where we sit right now in terms of an epidemic that I diagnosed called the epidemic of insecurity, all of the ways in which uh, the basic means of a dignified life have been stripped away from people in their, uh, in their lives, whether it's healthcare or housing uh, or, or access to an economy that pays a living wage uh, or access to our democracy um, or access to our politics, like all of these things uh, that are just being stripped away from people. And then the impact that it has in terms of how insecurity teaches us to like guard what we have rather than to invest in what we could have. Um, and, and, and that's a medical issue. Exactly. It's, it's framing the situation we're in right now. Like think about all the people who are suffering this. It's not just the people who are going to get the disease uh, and, and potentially die. It's all of society that is so uh, situated within the crevices of, uh, of our social infrastructure that, um, that they could fall through. And uh, we've built a society that's so porous that way um, because of this system of insecurity. Um, and so understanding how coronavirus is going to impact us isn't just about the disease, it's about the context of the disease. Um, and then, you know, I, I go, go forward and talk a little bit about how our politics needs to embrace an understanding of insecurity and the fear that it causes when, uh, when we articulate what it is that we want for our future, right? You can't just yell yeah. at people and tell them they're wrong. You have to empathize with them to understand why they're scared. And, um, and, and what it can be done if we're willing to have that kind of empathy for people, even with whom mm. we don't, we don't agree. And I think those in power know that the more insecure we feel, the more fear we have, the more anxiety, the more pressure on us, the more demoralized we are, the more debilitating it all feels, the despair, all of that. These are weapons against us that keep them in power. They keep right. the status quo, the status quo. That's right. Um, Nobody has weaponized insecurity like Donald Trump has. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's exactly what he's done. He's politically weaponized insecurity against us. And if we want to be able to defeat him, then we have to find the antidote. The antidote isn't yelling louder. Um, The antidote is understanding and asking why people are in pain um, and how we can communicate, right? Truth to pain. We have to talk about truth to power. And I don't think anybody on the left has trouble with that. I, what I do think is that we have trouble speaking truth to pain, and um, mm. and that's because sometimes we can't find our empathy to appreciate why people are in pain and what pain does um, to people uh, mm. when they're making hard decisions. 
look, I want, I think it's really important that everybody, obviously, you should follow every single protocol they're telling you to follow, disinfecting, hand washing, all of that. It's incredibly important. I don't think panic is a useful emotion, and I don't think it's positive for our politics. So even as we are giving into anxiety in this office, um, I think it's important to, you know, keep a level head and, uh, you know, just just hold that duality. We're not going into, a, you know, head in the sand Trumpism, and we're also should not be having an ultra panic either. Um, and also that, frankly, these are problems that have been emerging for decades. You go back to the Reagan era and you start gutting the social safety net. You start gutting the public health infrastructure. This is what it leads to, guys. It's not terribly complicated. If President Obama was in office, I have no doubt, and it would be utterly foolish to deny, that the response would be more effective and more responsible, obviously. Lives would be saved. Lives would be saved, and lives matter. So, absolutely. And this would still be a serious crisis because we do not have the public health infrastructure in the United States that even with incredible nurses and doctors and scientists and people doing and, and emergency responders and tech and all every a lot of people in health infrastructure who are talented, committed people doing serious work, um, some good people in various bureaucracies and so on. And even if you had an administration that was not fully committed to this market fantasy life they're committed enough and the bipartisan project has been enough that we would be in a serious problem right now and this is not about point scoring or debating or i mean look it does elevate one candidate above the others because one candidate is infinitely better than the others and of course we can't be delusional or silly about that but it it is it is it is a fact <laughs> this is a fact um, there's a book that folks can read that came out in 2000. Some of the examples are obviously dated, but it was laid out collapse, the portrayal of global public health. It's right there. And it's a global problem. And we see the places that, you know, and places like South Korea and so on, uh, have had an effective response it's because they have a serious public health commitment. Now this clip and these clips are going to be, you know, there's a gallows humor in it, but this is Kevin McCartney, McCarthy, sorry. Yeah. He's Kevin McCarthy, House Republican leader. And there is a dearth there, there of, of testing kits. There's a lot of misinformation about this too. And a lot of people, no doubt, are not getting tested because they're terrified of the medical bill. And there was also something I think Sam tweeted out yesterday showing that in Seattle, if you have insurance, I, I'm ballparking and I should have pulled it. But basically, if you have insurance, it's a couple hundred bucks or maybe 500 bucks. If you don't, it's over a thousand. 1500. Because we live, because this is, again, it is, it is utterly, utterly immoral. It's a society run by uh, criminal rackets. It's a society run by criminal rackets. And anybody who has bad mouthed or propagandized against Medicare for all is complicit in this. Yes. And this is an example, though, of when you're actually in a crisis and it would be immature. Of course, capitalism can do plenty of things. Capitalism can generate gadgets. Capitalism can create markets. Capitalism can do a lot. 
cannot respond, and we know historically, it simply cannot, it is not capable, it does not have its an incentive structure to respond to a crisis like this. So what you're about to see from Kevin McCarthy is cult thinking wedded to obviously system-wide massive corruption at a elemental level that is getting people killed. You, you're hearing from your members frustration that there are no testing kits. I mean, Congress is having testing kits. What's going on in this? There, there are testing kits out there. There are people who have been tested. Congress doesn't get in any forward in the front of the line as we talk to the doctor today. I was just talking to um, one American company out there that is just on the verge of being able to have the test ready in the next short time. They're making sure that it's done correctly. But you could have a test back in eight minutes. So, I mean, this is the ingenuity of this country. It's not just government's going to be able to solve it. We have such bright minds in the private sector as well. We want to harness that. We want to create the synergy. And that's what's going to get us to the point where we're going to have a vaccine for this. This is a cult. This is a cult. And and to be very clear, I'll tell you with regards to the idea of voting for Joe Biden in a swing state, I think this should be a clarifying reminder that harm reduction is real. And who has the reins in a crisis is real. And to ignore that and not factor that in your decision is ridiculous. And conversely, on the other hand, anybody that is saying that they will not support Medicare for all is complicit in this. And Joe Biden's career is complicit in this. Now, I hope people can see the duality of that comment because both of those things are true. And both of those things are inescapable. That's how horrible a situation we're in. It would be insane and immature to not see the distinction. And it would also be insane and immature to be like, oh, well, they have a different way of getting there. Or I don't know. I don't know if we can do all that. We need to do these things. If you want to continue the human prospect, we need to do these things. Yes, it's the right thing to do ethically. Yes, it's a better policy. All of these things. But if we don't start getting stuff like single-payer health care, or some actual legitimate international and national coordination mechanisms on stuff like this, we are in for this becoming the normal. And I'm, that's all I got to say. I mean. <laughs> and not just Medicare for all in one country, right? Because we are all in this together now. We are globally linked and we are only as safe and as healthy not just as the lowest person in our own society, but in the whole world. So I think <clears throat> looking to the future, it's a very illustrative example of why people in this country should care about what happens to people around the world. What I find so dystopian is the, the language that's used. Like we have a vendor that's going to have a new test available, right? Or or a supplier. I, I just imagine like, oh yeah, we have a vendor that's going to get water to you. We can't tell you which vendor this is. Just the arm's length, like who's actually accountable here, right? Like this is this is presented as if it's like, look at this dynamism we have. But really it's like, we're not actually responsible for this. We have these companies that we're going to say like, they're going to get your back. But if they don't, it's not on our fault. It's the vendors that let us down. The vendors that we won't even specify the name of. Nobody is actually responsible for any of this. And I mean, that's, that's by design. And it's a bureaucratized, hyper-modern version, though, of a similar logic to 
I remember, you know, okay, why can't this Pakistani village get clean water, right? This the the money was allocated, the technology's there. Oh, because a local politician and business network is controlling the supplies and using it to reward or punish people. And that happens ever in every country in the world. And now we're seeing, you know, again, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's 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 analog. It's a more bureaucratized version. Some people can die, some people and and very specifically, look at it. I mean, the rich can be okay. The poor can die. That is a punishment reward system with a public health crisis. And for propaganda purposes, if they die in a socialized medicine country, we'll count that against the country. But you suckers that uh, died in America because the vendor didn't come through with the test fast enough. Yeah, no kidding. And again, self-sufficiency. See, and I'm seeing plenty of empty store shelves. I thought that only happened in Venezuela. say a couple words on on bernie sanders here because he also gave a speech responding to the crisis today i thought in many ways his good speech it was also very illustrative of the differences between him and joe biden him and donald trump him and a lot of politicians so one i thought sanders gave a good speech as he often does he really emphasized what was interesting about joe biden's speech was you could tell that he was he just had a speech written by the scientists and the public health officials and the economists. And whereas Bernie's speech was a very Bernie speech, but which its uh, primary sort of trope was that we have to listen to the scientists, the public health professionals, um, not as much to the economists. Bernie's speech was what I would say you call in sort of politics and a now more than ever address, which is like now more than ever, given the crisis we're in, we need to do all the things I've wanted to do this whole time. And I think to Bernie's credit, He's right about a lot of that. I mean, Sanders has been out there on we would be in better shape today. It wouldn't solve the problem by any means, but we'd be in better shape today if we had Medicare for all and it was easier for people to uh, to, to just go to a doctor when they needed one. We'd be in better shape today if we had paid family leave and paid sick leave for all workers and child care that worked better and and so on. So one of the things Bernie Sanders was doing in that speech was really using coronavirus to make the argument for his broader agenda um, and, the, and to the idea that his broader agenda would in general have been a good idea to already have. Um, beyond that, I thought he had he both had some of the same ideas as Joe Biden in terms of, you know, short term stimulus. I thought he did. all The other thing, though, that I think is always notable about Sanders and that I found affecting in his speech. If the meta message of Joe Biden's speech is that this is what I would be like as president and I would deal with this emergency as an emergency. The meta message of Sanders' speech is that as president, I would never forget the least among us. I mean, it was very, it was not nearly as much a speech about coronavirus and how to respond to it on behalf of everyone as Biden's was. Like Biden's speech was very much aimed, I would say, at like a nervous, you know, 47 year old suburban worker, that kind of, that kind of like intended audience, mm-hmm. you know, Bernie Sanders gave a lot more attention to the poor, to the homeless, to immigrants, to the people he's really in politics to help. And on the one hand, that created a somewhat narrower speech. And on the other hand, it's really important that somebody's out there saying that. He also made a point, and I thought this was very important. I've been doing some writing on the amount of fear and social isolation and loneliness you're particularly going to have among the most affected populations here, the elderly, the disabled. He had a very good idea, I thought, for spinning up very rapidly and staffing very heavily, which, by the way, could also be a good jobs program. Uh, just hotlines people could call to get answers. 
years. I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, many people, I think, in their families are fielding a lot of calls from older relatives. I mean, this is a scary moment for a lot of people. And you could feel that Sanders felt that and wanted to respond to it. So it, it was an interesting moment. I mean, in a way, you could see Biden pivoting to the general and Sanders still making sort of his argument for what the Democratic Party and then the, the country should become. But within that, I thought you you did see a lot of the power of the Sanders agenda because it just really is a case that a lot of things he has been arguing for and was arguing for in the speech, it would be good to have in place right now today and not have to um, like hope we pass it sometime in 2023. Well, and, you know, this whole thing, it's, I think, got to be in some ways uh, sad if you if you embrace uh, Bernie's sort of social democratic vision that this crisis is coming at what looks like a low point of his campaign, because it is really so illustrative of, I think, the most appealing moral themes of Sanders's campaign. Right. So you have like everybody is talking about how, well, we have to make testing for coronavirus free, like we have to do you know, this, that, and the other thing, because it's this huge emergency. And like the basic Sanders question about like this whole thing is like, well, why not all the time, right? Like, why is it good to be driven into bankruptcy uh, because you have cancer if it's bad to be driven into bankruptcy if you have coronavirus, right? And to say that like, look, like this is just our mind happens to be focused at the moment on the question of what happens if you are ill and you need help and you don't have a lot of money. There's newspaper articles about that, whereas we wouldn't ordinarily write an article that's like, oh, this guy got sick and then he didn't have any more money and it's really sad. Um, And that's always been for decades, like Bernie's point about the political media is like it doesn't focus on these kinds of tangible human problems that are now coming to a fore in coronavirus. And as you say, it's not it's not like passing Medicare for all would fix this public health emergency, but it's that um, right. A lot of European countries have national health care. Right. I mean, and actually, right like pe- people don't design national health care systems to be adequately resilient to these crises. There's like a lot of technical objections you can level to that kind of analysis. But it's that this is a moment that calls for a spirit of solidarity. Right. The whole point. I mean, we uh, there have been other weeds episodes about this, but like the whole point of everything in social distancing is not that like if I get sick, it's going to be so bad. Like I will have a fever. I'll cough. I'll get over. It, but it's that we have to care about the community writ large. There are vulnerable populations here, and we need to take care of those vulnerable populations by halting infection. But social distancing has tremendous economic costs to service sector workers, to tipped workers, to, to all kinds of hourly employees. So now we also need to do something for them. We probably should be closing schools to stop infection, but we rely on the schools to provide social safety nets. So it's like, think big, think about more people. And the best best version of Bernie Sanders is about that moral vision. And this is a time when I'm really struck by the the power of that vision. And, you know, I think we're we're not sort of going to delve into the the micro details of the primary, uh, but it's sort of I mean, there's never like a I don't want to say it would be good for Bernie to have had a huge crisis three months ago, but it, it's like this is why Bernie Sanders style politics is appealing to the people who it appeals to. At the beginning of the night, Senator Bernie Sanders and Vice President Joe Biden, after doing elbow bumps instead of handshakes, were asked about 
how they would respond to the coronavirus pandemic and quickly began to debate Medicare for all. This is a part of their exchange, beginning with Joe Biden. With all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. It has nothing to do with Medicare for all. That would not solve the problem at all. We can take care of that right now by making sure that no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not working in Italy right now, and well, they have a single-payer system. Well. <laughs> now, with regard to what else I would do. The fact is that we're in a position where I would bring together the leading experts in the world. Instead of doing this in the United States, instead of doing this piecemeal, sit down and do what we did before with the Ebola crisis. What is needed? And have one voice, one voice, like we did every day we met in that crisis in the Situation Room, laying out, so we lay out overall, for all the nation, what the best proposal is and how to move forward. In the absence of that, governors are making some sound decisions. They're doing the best they can by going out and getting the healthcare experts in their communities and their states to move. But it should be directed from the White House, from the Situation Room, laying out in detail like we did in the Ebola Thank crisis, you. and we beat it. Thank you. Senator Sanders, your response? Well, first of all, uh, the dysfunctionality of the current health care system is obviously apparent. Uh, as I said earlier, there are people who hesitate to go to the doctor. You're going to have a maze of regulations. Well, if this is my income, if that's my income, can I get it? Can I not get it? Clearly, we are not prepared, and Trump only exacerbates the crisis. When we spend twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation, one might expect that we would have enough doctors all over this country. One might expect that we would have affordable prescription drugs. One might expect that we are preparing effectively for a pandemic, that we were ready with the ventilators, with the ICUs, with the test kits that we need. We are not. And bottom line here is in terms of Medicare for all, despite what the vice president is saying, what the experts tell us is that one of the reasons that we are unprepared and have been unprepared is we don't have a system. We got thousands of private insurance plans. That is not a system that is prepared to provide health care to all people. In a good year, without the epidemic, we're losing up to 60,000 people who die every year because they don't get to a doctor on time. And clearly, this crisis is only making a bad situation worse. That has nothing to do when you're in a national crisis. The national crisis says we're responding. It's all free. You don't have to pay for a thing. That has nothing to do with whether or not you have an insurance policy. This is a crisis. We're at war with the virus. We're at war with the virus. It has nothing to do with co-pays or anything. We just passed a law saying that you do not have to pay for any of this, period. That's not period. true. As a matter of fact, that's not true. That law has enormous loopholes. I understand that Nancy Pelosi did her best. Republicans prevented it. No, I, what, you're talk, I you're, what, what you're talking about, Joe, here is enormous loopholes within that, that, in fact, it is not necessarily covering treatment for all people in America and that people are going to be stuck with a bill unless we change that. And we're going to offer legislation to, in fact, change that. If I may, I offered legislation. I laid out on my plan that it would cover exactly what is not covered by the House. I laid out in the plan that I laid out for while we would deal with this crisis. Nobody, 
Nobody will pay for anything having to do with the crisis. This is a national emergency. There isn't a question of whether or not this is something that could be covered by insurance or anything else. We out of the Treasury are going to pay for this. It's a national emergency. So that's Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. That's last night's debate. For more, we're continuing with Yamata Taylor, who is assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University's, endorsed Bernie Sanders for president, and Michael Eric Dyson, Georgetown University professor, political analyst and author, has endorsed Vice President Joe Biden for president. Kianga Yamata Taylor, uh, if you would respond, um, you are a Bernie Sanders supporter uh, on both issues, a support, uh, Respond on the issue of Medicare for all, um, and also that Joe Biden recently said he would veto a Medicare for all bill that uh, landed on his desk as president. But also, you did just write this piece in The New York Times, the op-ed piece, um, that says why Sanders isn't winning over black voters. Yeah, um, a a couple of things. I I came to support Sanders because I think that his— politics and his political program actually capture the depths of the, the, the problem and crises um, in the United States right now. Even before the coronavirus um, hit the U.S., the, the, the problems with the grotesque amount of uh, economic inequality in this country, uh, the way that that manifests itself, um, particularly in black communities in terms of underemployment, uh, the issues with uh, racial justice, injustice with the criminal justice uh, uh, system um, in this country, the issues with housing insecurity, uh, I, the, the entirety of Bernie Sanders' program uh, captures the uh, uh, abiding problems of inequality in the United States um, right now that have disproportionate impact um, in African-American uh, uh, communities. And so for me, um, this was not a difficult decision. Um, I am, you know, someone who is deeply cynical about uh, electoral politics and have been for some time. Um, in, in many ways, I remain that way. But uh, Sanders' um, candidacy in 2016, where someone who identifies as a socialist for the first uh, time in a mainstream election garnered 13 million votes that I think spoke to uh, the deep uh, uh, problems in this society and the deep desire uh, to do something um, a- about them. Uh, but beyond the issue of the, the program, I think that uh, of, of Sanders' program, um, I think that uh, there, there are two things that are really important. Um, his commitment to solidarity that is exemplified by uh, his campaign slogan, um, us, not me. Um, <clears throat> Or uh, uh, and the uh, the political revolution, which is really just about saying that uh, is an understanding that in order to pass the kind of dramatic legislation that is necessary to transform the lives of people um, in this country, that it's not just going to come from Washington D.C. It most likely won't come from Washington D.C., um, but that it actually has to be pursued by. Uh, uh, social movements on the ground. It has to be pursued um, by organizing um, on the ground. And Bernie Sanders is clearly by far and away the only candidate um, that understands that. So when people talk about uh, his political program as pie in the sky, is unrealistic, <clears throat> not only is that betraying their own cynicism, 
in, in for that matter, ignorance about the way that progress has been achieved in, in this country. Um, but it dismisses what I think is very uh, different and, and fundamental about how he sees uh, the enactment of these policies, which is through broad social movements on the ground uh, that have the ability uh, to politically coerce uh, a, a Congress that is filled with millionaires, that is filled with self-interested uh, 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 politicians uh, who have very little interest, uh, uh, many of whom have very little, who have displayed very little interest um, in the conditions of the, the, the people who are worst off um, in this country. And I think now more than ever, we see the, the absolute necessity for universal health care in this country, that Joe Biden can show his face in public and talk still about affordable health care when we have a convergence of a public health care crisis and an economic crisis. And the solution to the public health care crisis is what will drive the economic crisis. Isolation, quarantining, uh, putting the country on, on lockdown will exacerbate the economic uh, crisis uh, 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 ex that is, is about to be unleashed um, in this country. So the notion that health care should be affordable, that prescriptions should be affordable in a time where people's ability to afford anything for ordinary working class people, their ability to afford anything will be thrown into absolute peril makes no sense. And I think that what Sanders said over the weekend, that we are as safe as the least insured person has never made more sense than it does uh, uh, in this in this moment. And so I think that the, the, the crisis that we are confronted with as a society right now not only highlights the vast inequality that is the underbelly of U.S. society uh, uh, that is usually and typically hidden, the lives of poor people uh, are, are almost always papered over and hidden in this country. And in moments of crisis, they come bubbling to the surface. And so we have to ask as, as a society, are we going to use this opportunity to use this moment uh, to actually implement fundamental change? Or are we going to continue to kick this can down the road uh, uh, and acting as, uh, uh, as if there is some normal um, to get back to? We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin on some of the media framing of the pandemic and what's being ignored. Democracy Now! discussed the dangers of a lack of paid sick leave. Intercepted spoke with Naomi Klein about the story of individualism in our culture that needs to be replaced by a story of social connectedness. Rumble with Michael Moore explored the emotional toll and the political nature of responding to a pandemic. The Majority Report discussed the gutting of the public health infrastructure. The Weeds drew the connection between the policy goals of the Bernie Sanders campaign in relation to what we need to do to survive a pandemic. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! hosting a discussion responding to the Sanders-Biden debate. Members will be hearing a bit more of what we would have been learning about Biden in that lost episode that I mentioned at the beginning of the show that ended up 
being set aside for the time being to hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly with a call about your thoughts at the end of episode 1343 on socialism and people being afraid to vote for more revolutionary change like Sanders. And I listened to it a couple of times because I wanted to make sure I wasn't mischaracterizing what you said. And I think I'm going to have to call you out a little bit on doing a thing that you caution other people against, which is not articulating the argument that your opponent is making accurately, and therefore you're not really responding to the, you know, to the actual argument being made. Uh, I heard you say that the reason you feel that, or the, you know, and maybe this is something you've actually read, but you, you characterize people who were supporting Biden as people who felt like the way things were before was fine, and so I just want to go back to that. And a lot of what I've been reading, particularly from black writers, African-American writers, is not that at all. They don't believe things were fine before. They know things weren't fine before. But they also, and, and one of the articles in particular I thought was interesting, or well, two of them, basically said, yeah, we know things weren't fine before. They've never been fine for us. But... We also don't trust white people to do the thing that would be good for us. And at least with Biden, we know what we're getting. And uh, in some cases, it's, you know what, let's go for stability such that things aren't going to get worse for us rather than going from one guy who wanted to change everything and it made things worse for us to another guy who's promising to change everything again and Big social changes in the U.S. have generally not been favorable to black people. You know, as much as, you know, Tom Hartman can say that Bernie wants to, you know, just continue the work of the New Deal and that he's a New Deal Democrat and, and so on. I mean, the New Deal intentionally left black people out. Redlining was a New Deal policy. You know, but people talk about the creation of Social Security and it left out porters and domestic workers, which just happened to be the two professions most dominated by black workers. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of genuine distrust. And I think it's an earned distrust that when someone says, we're going to come in and shake up the entire system, that a lot of people, uh, you know, especially older black people who are the base of the Democratic Party, hear that and say, oh, great, here we go again. So um, the people in particular that I saw talking about this stuff, there's an article by Ellie Mistal, M-Y-S-T-A-L, in The Nation, talking about why it is that you see a lot of older black voters still going for Biden, and uh, a number of people on black Twitter, Lisa Sharon Harper, Brittany Cooper, and Michael Harriet, all talking about essentially the idea that Black people know that white people won't vote to help black people, so and they won't even vote to help themselves. How, you know, black people went for Jesse Jackson and Michael Dukakis, who were genuinely progressive, and white people voted against them. So, you know, I, I think 
you missed part of the argument in the way you characterized people supporting Biden. And I just think it could be revisited with a little bit more, uh, a little bit broader scope of who people supporting Biden are. It's not just the if, uh, you know, if Hillary won, we'd be at brunch right now crowd. I think there's a lot of people who just see it as, you know what, before we go and create radical change, let's at least just get our feet for a second so that we, you know, the analogy I read today was it's like hanging on a cliff by three fingers and your choices are pull yourself up and get your feet under you so you can make a good decision about which direction to go next or letting go and hoping you can learn to fly on the way down. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. They want to at least have their feet under them before going off in another direction. I'm not saying that's necessarily where where I come down. I'm actually still sort of hovering in the middle, trying to decide which way I want to go. I guess you could say my fingers are still on the cliff edge, but that didn't land right to me. And I wanted to call out a couple of other perspectives that I've read that might bring some different points of view to this conversation. Thanks as always. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I I love... Aaron's voicemail that we just heard it sort of it came in, you know, a week ago or, or more after the socialism episode. Everything has been thrown into the air since then. So it's a little strange to be talking about just a sort of normal political conversation. But on the other hand, it's a little refreshing and it may be the last we have for a while. So let's let's uh, dive in. First of all, she's completely right that I was a little flippant. I went back and listened to myself. I'm a little flippant when I talk about people and, you know, using too big of a group is always dangerous, but, you know, Biden voters as thinking, well, whatever was happening before was okay. So let's just go back to that. I am aware that not everyone feels that way. Obviously, not only are, you know, black voters, not a monolith within themselves, but they, um, you know, come from a very different perspective, generally from yeah, the the average voter that the media talks about, for instance, which is always talking about white people in the Midwest. And so, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, older black voters in the South are uninformed. That's why they're voting the way they are. That is demonstrably not the case. They are incredibly informed. I'm very aware of that. Um, I'm also aware that they are fighting for their lives, you know, in America, at a time that's where it's being revealed that we're all a lot closer to the edge of the cliff than we thought we were, black people are the people in the country who have always been near the edge of the cliff and know it. So they are fighting for their lives. Their their politics is related directly to their survival as a community. I get all of that. And so I have a, a reasonable understanding of these dynamics, and I did not mean to flippantly put 
black voters or black Southern voters or, you know, black older voters who consistently vote for moderate Democrats in the same camp as comfortable middle class white people. They're not in the same camp. They may end up voting the same way, but for very different reasons. So I, I admit that fault right off the bat. But I think that my point still stands up pretty well, even in the face of that. So what I would just say quickly about the difference between a Bernie Sanders style New Deal and an FDR style New Deal is a 100% dedication to the universality of programs. Arguing for universal programs is how we deflect away from otherwise inevitable racist outcomes. Like, for instance, black people get shamed for taking advantage of government services a lot, but not really about Social Security, for instance. Black people don't really get shamed for taking their normal, regular Social Security benefits that everyone gets, and that's the benefit of universality. So if you're arguing for means-tested programs, programs that give or support or protect only those who need it, you are actively helping to perpetuate racism. You don't have to desire a racist outcome, but you are helping it come into existence anyway because means-tested programs are the vehicle through which racism perpetuates itself and prevents us from having nice things for anyone. But let's get back to the analogy because I think the hanging-by-a-cliff analogy actually gives me a good way to explain where I'm coming from and my and my position because I can expand on it. I totally get the hanging by the three fingers analogy and that that's a really dangerous situation and that it would make someone want to do whatever it takes just to get their feet under them. I get that. The argument coming from me and people like me and, and the Bernie Sanders coalition, I think, can be explained by expanding that analogy. So, uh, first of all, I would say, okay, the fact that you're hanging on by three fingers off the edge of, of the cliff right now is evidence that you were near the edge before, right? Like, we all know that. That's People being near the edge is what happens when you don't have universal safety net systems to keep people away from the edge. And being, you know, thrust over the side so that you're just barely hanging on can happen— I'm guessing that the way this analogy goes, I, I think I'm right, is that the Trump election is what pushed a lot of people to the point where they're barely hanging on, right? They were on the edge, they got pushed over the edge, now they're barely hanging on. And what I am arguing is that when you were standing on the edge, you're even less secure than you thought you were, because as it turns out, the edge of that cliff had started breaking away, you might have known that you were near the edge. But what you may not have known is that behind you, a giant crack was forming and the entire edge of the cliff was about to give way. Then the Trump election came and you fell off the side and you thought, I would give anything just to climb back up and get my feet under me. So Joe Biden is standing up there at the top of the cliff, holding out his hand, saying, come back up here with me, get your feet under you. And what we're saying is, 
Be careful. Don't you see that entire cliff is about to give way? Getting up on top of it isn't going to help you. And maybe this is where the analogy gets silly. I guess then that means that Bernie Sanders is coming along in a helicopter or something with a rope dangling saying, no, 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 that cliff is no good. It's built on neoliberalism and a total lack of safety nets and the fallacy of individualism. You got to jump on and we're all going to fly off to another plateau and then we can be safe on a different parcel of land where we will implement social safety nets that are universal so that no one gets near the edge ever again. So Aaron is absolutely right to point out that it is not appropriate to put uh, black voters in the same category as comfortable middle-class white voters who think that everything was just fine before. But if you think that if I could just get my feet under me in a Biden administration, and then we could sort of reassess from there. If you think that that is a degree of safety, what I'm arguing is that is not nearly as safe as you think it is. That is not stable the way you think it is, because something could come along and expand that crack at the edge of the cliff and push us all tumbling down. Oh, and it just turns out that Perhaps the coronavirus is exactly that thing that's about to push all of us over the edge because the entire cliff face is about to give way. I believe that we're going to be continuing to have this conversation going forward. But, you know, a few days ago, I was, I was trying to project far into the future. You know, what what does a post-coronavirus politics look like? And what I thought of was World War II and what many countries did after having gone through World War II. You know, the, the United Kingdom lives through the Blitz years and comes out on the other side and decides we need the National Health Service. That is how we could potentially respond to a devastating event like the coronavirus. But that only happens if you have the people in place who believe that that is the answer to our problems. So in the next four years, whoever's president is going to have an unprecedented opportunity in, in America, maybe only precedented by the Great Depression in World War II, but otherwise an unprecedented ability to shape the next several generations based on what they do in the wake of this pandemic and voting now for middle-of-the-road stability means that we will squander that opportunity to make the changes we really need to get everyone away from the cliff's edge. Now, with that aside, I will say what some think is contradictory and I do not think is, and finish off uh, how I have pledged to finish off by reminding you that regardless of how the primaries pan out, it is imperative that we all try to move forward with a more just society and vote with the most vulnerable communities and tell everyone else to do the same, period, end of story. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. Thanks also to anyone who bookmarks our affiliate link 
to the big box store in the sky on their browser or by making a home button on their phone so that all of their shopping goes through our link and we get kickbacks for that. That could very well be the thing that uh, helps us survive this economic crisis. Now, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Obviously, uh, not in person, digitally, or, or shout to them from a safe distance. You can also leave glowing reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find it. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you as often as we're able to get it to you. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with a little news by Limerick. You may have heard of the members of Congress who sold stocks weeks before everyone else was given the warning that the coronavirus was going to take over and cause an economic collapse. At Limerick's rights, these lawmakers knew of the crash and so lined their pockets with cash. Their goal is not aiding but insider trading, for they, like their party, are trash.